This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I was reading a newspaper the other day, and after a, a really depressing read, I was thinking to myself, man, we live in a really messed up world. And I was remember reading a survey just a few days ago in the newspaper which said that more people today uh, are worried about war, terrorism, corruption, and political problems than in the previous years before. And you read the newspaper about people being worried about uh, income inequality, about immigration, about job insecurity. And as I was reflecting on all these things, I remember reading a book uh, many, many years ago, or hearing about this book that was written actually, I I didn't really read it, but I read articles about it, but it might have been written before some of you were born. And it's actually written by this guy called Francis Fukuyama, called The End of History and the Last Man. And this was actually written uh, many decades ago, and it was very positive about the view of society in the world. It was written after the end of the Cold War, and it basically said that society had evolved to a stage where after the end of Cold War, communism was gone, now would be an age where societies would become peaceful, democratic, and full of liberal capitalism. But the reality is actually today as we look at the world, there is no evolution of society. Uh, all around the world, you can actually see that society is more messed up than before. It's even true about the coming of the internet. I remember when the internet started coming to the world, people were saying, oh, you know, the internet is going to be a really great thing. There's going to be more news, more transparency, more integrity, because the news will no longer be controlled by nations or the media or dictators, but it will be free for everybody. Everybody will have access to the news. But the reality is, Actually, the internet hasn't brought more transparency, but less transparency, less news, less integrity. So again, I was reading the paper, and someone said that the internet is one-third pornography, one-third commerce, and one-third full of nutheads and crazy people. And somebody else was saying that if you don't read the news, you're uninformed, but if you read the news on the internet, you're misinformed. So the reality is that we live in a, a messed up world, and... And how do we understand the world when we look at the Bible? You know, is there something wrong with the world that we live in? Well, in today's passage, it's actually very straightforward where we are in the story. Uh, Absalom has succeeded in seizing the throne from his father, King David. And now he's coming for his life and he wants to take him down completely, once and for all. So if you look at the, this slide up here... Uh, Absalom has massed a massive army consisting of the 12 tribes of Israel. So from Dan, which is all the way, oh, it's a bit small, from Dan all the way in the north to Bathsheba in the south, he's, he's collected a coalition of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, to come and mass against the previous king, his father, King David. So if you look at this other map, uh, they are now in the area of Gilead, the red area. And if if you look at the next map, you'll see that Absalom's men are over here on the west, and Mahanaim is where David is. And today, if you look at the passage, you see that David doesn't have a big force, but it's not a small force, because in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zariah, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. The king 
told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, You must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give, give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate, where all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man, Absalom, for my sake. And all the troops heard the king give orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So David here has a not insignificant force himself, probably numbering in the tens of thousands, but definitely facing a much bigger force, and he appoints three commanders over his force. But you notice something very interesting here, because David himself actually wanted to go out to lead the army into battle, just as he's always done in the past. But here the army shows wisdom, and it's the wisdom that we saw with Ahitopol in chapter 16 and chapter 18, uh, 16 and 17, sorry. Because in the initial plan, if you remember, Ahitopo himself, who was very wise, had told Absalom that he would go and choose 12,000 men. He himself would go and attack David. But Absalom, as we saw last week, would have none of that. Absalom himself wanted to lead his army to victory. He wanted to be there at the front. But it was not wise advice that Absalom was following. The wise course of action was Ahitopo's advice, was the army's wisdom, where the king should have been at the back of the army, not at the front. Because what we're looking at here is not Israel fighting for democracy. He's, she's not fighting for independence. It's not fighting for a cause. Basically, what we see here is a civil war between two kings. And once one king is eliminated, there's no point fighting anymore. The king is what you're fighting for. So the protection and the life of that king is very important. And that's why the army says, no, you stay here in the city while we go and fight. Because they know that the king is worth more than all the troops. So David shows himself wiser than Absalom. And he says, I will do what you say is best. And he stays in the city. But look at what it says in verse 5. Because something very shocking happens in verse 5. And in verse 5, as the army and the troops and the commanders are going past David at the city gates, David gives a command heard by everybody, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Now, it's interesting how he describes Absalom as the young man. And he will keep being described as the young man by David through the chapter and beyond. The young man here is a term of endearment, of tenderness, of love and compassion. Right? Absalom is the young man. He will always be the young man to David. But the problem is, he is not the young man in God's eyes. He is, in God's eyes, an, a murderer, an adulterer, a rebel against God's anointed king. As we've seen over the last few chapters, he's a proud man, an arrogant man, who does not acknowledge God, know God, or even repent of his wickedness. But yet, David makes a very strong statement. He says, be gentle to the young man for my sake. 
he invests the whole weight of his person, his power, his prestige, his personality, his position into making sure that all the commanders and all the troops will be gentle with Absalom. Now, this is actually something that's very conflicted about David, isn't it? Because if you actually look at this passage, it puts David at the opposite end against God. Because David's approach to Absalom is gentleness. But we read in chapter 17 that God's approach to Absalom was disaster and judgment. In chapter 17, verse 14, it says, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahitophel, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahitophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. So David, God's anointed, actually is putting himself in opposition to God's will. David wants Absalom to be treated with gentleness. Absalom, in God's eyes, deserves judgment. Now what's going to happen here, right? Because David, as we've seen so far, displays a worrying indulgence of his sons. It's very worrying. If, if it was just one incident, we can sort of understand David, but as we've been looking to the life of David and the way he relates to his sons, he is very weak and passive and indulgent when it comes to his sons. His son Amnon raped his daughter and he did nothing. Absalom then murdered Amnon. He did nothing. In fact, he brought Absalom back into the throne and gave him all the rights and inheritance as before. Absalom led a rebellion for four years and as far as we could see, David did nothing. And here, Absalom wants to kill him. And what does David want to do? Be gentle with the young man. Now, it's very worrying because if we've been reading through the book of Samuel, David seems to be no different from Eli the priest, which, if you remember, came all the way back in, in 1 Samuel. Because Eli the priest was also very weak and passive and indulgent when he came to his sons. Eli's sons were priests with him and they slept with the women serving the temple. They took the sacrifices which were dedicated to God forcibly because they wanted barbecue meat instead of boiled meat. Do you remember that? And this is what God said to Eli in chapter uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 2. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord said. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Now, as we just come to this early section, we're very 
conflicted. I don't know about you, I'm very conflicted about David. Uh, how is David God's anointed king when he's so weak and passive and indulgent of his children? Because he's not fulfilling God's role in terms of justice and righteousness and judgment. Well, the next section, we read about the battle itself. And what an anticlimax it is, right? Because it's only contained in three verses. Not much of a... Not much of an exciting story. It was only an overwhelming victory for David's men. It was like a wipeout, right? If it was a tennis match, it would be six love, six love, six love. And 20,000 of Absalom's troops died. But the, the focus of the historical narrative focuses on Absalom because that's the main character that, that is interested in. And it's also almost like a comedy, right? When you read it, I remember when we did the Bible study, the Bible study leader training, people thought, why, why is it so long, right? I mean, the battle itself is only three verses, but everything else is like this big joke in a way, right? If it wasn't so sad and real. And the first comedic element, in a way, is Absalom getting stuck on the tree, right? He's, he is riding his mule in verse 9, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree and he was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Now, I think that the writer is trying to make a point here in terms of, in a sense, making it a bit funny. right? Because the two elements which are brought to our attention, the mule and the hare, point to something about Absalom. Absalom was, as we have read, very much into appearances. He wants to look good. Right? So remember, one of the first things he did when he came back to Jerusalem was he would ride his chariot with 50 men running in front of the chariot. Well, here, we understand that he was riding a mule. And in ancient Israel, riding a mule was what kings rode. The kings symbolically rode a mule. But for him to ride a mule into battle was a bit like taking your Rolls Royce to war. You know, it's totally unsuitable to go to war on a mule. But here was Absalom, who was more interested in appearances, riding his mule into battle, but together with his exceedingly long hair. We were told in chapter 14 about how Absalom looked like a movie star, and he had lots and lots of hair. Right, so if you look up here, his hair weighed 2 kg. I don't know whether that's an exaggeration, right? That's a lot of hair. But you can imagine how impractical it would be to go to war with that much hair. Okay, I mean, he should have shaved it off or tied in a big ponytail or something. But here it seems as if his concern for his appearance was his downfall. And he gets stuck on the tree. We don't know whether he's unconscious, whether he was hurt in some way. But one of the soldiers from David's army sees him hanging there. But he remembers what David said so clearly to all the commanders and the soldiers. Be gentle on the young man for my sake. And his fear for David the king is so great that he says, even if I had 1,000 shekels, which would be like a, a, a fortune, right? I would not have even touched Absalom. In fact, one of the, the worrying things that the man says is found in verse 13. 
if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Now, we don't know whether this young man is exaggerating, but he was actually physically fearing for his life if he hurt Absalom. Is this telling us the extent of David's fatherly sentimental love for Absalom, that he would actually kill his own soldier for hurting his son Absalom? If so, then it sort of shows to you that David as a king is really compromised by his love for his sons. That it says something is really radically wrong with David in the way that he indulges his sons. But Joab, the military commander, as we've seen over the last chapters of Samuel, is someone who has his own mind, right? He will do what is right. He doesn't really care about what David thinks. So, he takes three javelins, one is not enough, and he thrusts it into the heart of Absalom when he's hanging on the tree. And if that's not enough, he gets ten of his men to hack Absalom to death. Because Joab knows, and the army was right, Ahitopo was right, that with the death of the king, a rival king, it would bring peace once and for all to Israel. And as we read, that's exactly what happens because with Absalom dead, everybody goes back home. Maybe he was afraid of David's love for Absalom, that somehow David would find a way to forgive Absalom and let him live or somehow let him be put in exile or whatever and there would always be the opportunity for rebellion to come about again. But I think that the important lesson for us in this chapter is the very clear message that between David's plans and God's judgment, God wins out. Even though David invests his whole position, his personality, his power, his prestige into his order, God's will to judge Absalom still comes to fulfillment. So I remember last week, it was Chinese New Year, and when I, and I, I visited somebody's house. And you know, usually when you visit people's houses in Chinese New Year, because there's so many people and it can get a bit boring, they always have the TV on, right? So on TV, uh, there was a movie that was being shown called The King's Speech. I'm sure hardly any of you have watched The King's Speech. But it's a very good movie. You can watch it if, uh, if you ever get a chance. I highly recommend it. Anyway, it's about the lead character being the king of England during, before World War II. And he has a speech impediment. He stutters really badly. So he goes to this Australian actor's place to get speech therapy. Anyway, being the king, he wants to do whatever he wants to do. He smokes and you know he does everything. And then the speech therapist says, no, you can't smoke. My castle, my rules. And he keeps saying that, right? This is my place, my castle, my rules. And I think as we read this passage... That's exactly the message that's being sent to us, that this is God's place, God's rules. Even David, the king, with all his power, cannot make his plans overcome God's rules and God's will. I remember reading somewhere saying, how do you make God laugh? Well, you make God laugh by telling him your plans. Right? Because 
Your plans are not God's plans and you will never override God's plans. And here we see that who is really under control is David. David and his whole world around him is under God's control and David is not control of things. Now the last part is very interesting because it doesn't really have to be here but yet we are told of some details which again are meaningful. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now obviously we live many thousands of years after the writing of 2 Samuel, but when 2 Samuel was written, there was a monument somewhere in Israel that you could go visit that Absalom had built for himself. Absalom himself never reached the glorious recognition that this monument was meant to represent. Instead, he was buried under a pile of rocks. But the monument was still there. I think this passage is telling us that this monument was actually not a monument to glory, which was what Absalom designed it for, but a monument to Absalom's foolishness. It was a monument to the foolishness of trying to go against God and God's will. It was a monument of foolishness of placing ego and pride and appearances before God and a monument to show that you will face judgment if you live like Absalom. I think that this message still rings true today. We may not have Absalom's monument to go to, but when we read of Absalom, we recognize that there are many, many Absaloms in the world today. People who are only interested in power, people who are interested in appearances, people who don't know God, don't recognize God, and seek only their own glory. But as we look at today's passage, it actually tells us that God judges people just like that. And that nothing in the world can actually stop God from bringing judgment on these people. Now these people may be people we know personally who affect us or people that we read about, But today's passage actually warns us that this will be the the eventual and ultimate outcome for the Absalons of those days as the Absalons of today. Now we come to the last section. And again, a very long narrative, a very long story. I'm sure that when uh, it was being read to us by Jane, we were sort of thinking, you know, it's almost like a comedy, right? This young, enthusiastic maybe even a teenager, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, wanting to bring the news to the king, and the wiser Joab saying, no, no good news for you today. Today is not the news that you bring. We'll send a foreign talent immigrant to go and the Kushite to go and tell David the news. But the young man says, I have to go. And when Joab says, why do you have to go? He says, come what way I want to run. Right? It almost sounds like, Forrest Gump or something, right? You know, I just got to keep running, right? I've got to go. And you can sort of see the comedy in the whole situation. 
But it's not funny in a way because I think the reason why we are told all the details was because as we look at the last part, if you see up here on the slide, the last part of the conversation where finally both Ahimaaz and the Cushite arrive to David, the way they present what they see as happening in the battle and what David perceives are completely different, right? So both Ahimaaz and the Cushite say, Praise be to the Lord, your God. He has delivered up those who have lifted up their hands against my Lord, the King. When the Cushite arrived in verse 31, My Lord, the King, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. So what they are saying is God himself has given you victory. Remember this was an overwhelming force of the whole of Israel from Dan to Bathsheba fighting against basically David's small force. But yet he won overwhelmingly. And what they are saying is God is the one who has delivered you, who has vindicated you, who has shown that you are in the right, who has forgiven you and given you back your kingdom. That is what is happening here. But look at what David's concern is. Both times, he says, is the young man, Absalom, safe? That is his only concern. And I guess that's what makes this passage so difficult because as we end this chapter, we see David going up to the room and basically mourning and wailing and crying in grief. Now, as a parent, I can understand David's grief. Uh, for those of you who are parents, I'm sure that you, you, you've always had a great concern and love for your kids, right? You know, as you get older, it's what keeps parents up at night when they come back late, right? But how are we to understand David? How are we to understand this passage? I think in many ways, as we come to the end of this chapter, it, it gives us a very conflicted feeling about David and his role in God's kingdom. He was God's anointed king who was meant to rule with justice and righteousness. But here, his love for his children makes it difficult for him to fulfill what God has anointed him to do. At the same time, we look at David in the bigger picture and we see how conflicted he is because of his sin with Bathsheba his adultery of Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, his indulgence of his children. Is it because he is sinful himself that he cannot exercise justice in a neutral way because now he himself is a murderer, he himself was an adulterer? We look at David's family who will soon also become kings, right? We look at Amnon who was a pervert and raped his own sister. We look at Absalom who in many ways, you know, basically was really rotten to the core as well. And we see Joab, who does what he thinks is good. I think as we come to the end of this uh, chapter, it makes us realize that in many ways, Israel is no different from all the nations around it. And it is messed up. And it can no longer give us the promise of God's kingdom on this earth. And I think that that's why when we 
uh, come to the end of uh, to, uh, 2 Samuel, when we do the Bible overview, Bible studies, I hope all of you can go to the Bible studies and, 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 and be able to sit through all the 31 sessions so that you can really see the Bible overview. But again and again, we keep seeing this pattern in the Bible, in the big picture, right? Where Adam and Eve started so promisingly, and then it ends really badly. Then we see a, new, a fresh start in Noah, and again, that ends badly. Then we see Abraham and his family, and again, they are no shining beacons of godliness. And here we see Israel and her best king. And again, we see how the pattern continues. And, and they themselves are really, really wicked at the end and really conflicted. So I remember reading this um, novel, which I'm sure hardly any of you have read. It's called The Cant- uh, a Canticle for uh, Leibowitz. Wits. Anyway, it was written many years ago, and that's why I don't think anybody ever read it. And uh, it speaks about how uh, there's this nuclear war which destroys the whole world. And uh, in the end, there are only left a few pockets of humanity, and there's a bunch of monks living in isolation somewhere, and they sort of collect uh, signs right, for thousands of years. And then finally, civilization comes back again. Anyway, there's a spoiler here, because I'll tell you the end of the story. But again, humanity begins destroying itself based on the knowledge that they had actually saved up. And then there's a nu- another nuclear war that happens. right? And it, it's a very depressing picture where it's almost like humanity is, keeps repeating the same mistakes over and over again, generation after generation, even thousands of years. Well, I think when you look at the Bible, as we've been going through so far in the history of uh, God's people, it's the same pattern. Humanity cannot save itself because its leaders are weak and its people are weak. But in Acts chapter 2, uh, it goes on to say, if you look up here on the slide, okay, this was a sermon by the Apostle Peter. He said, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Therefore, Lord, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to to Peter and all the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. What this passage says is that David was never the answer. David was a human being. He died and was buried and placed in a tomb, and that's it. And David, like all humanity, was sinful, just as like we are all sinful. So God's answer was never in a human, but in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to show us 
and prove to us that He was the Lord and Messiah. Because only in Jesus do you have a perfect king, a perfect judge, but yet someone who can give us forgiveness for our sins. And the answer is not to turn to human kings or human rulers or human systems, but to turn to Jesus to receive His forgiveness, to repent, and to save ourselves from the corrupt generation. See, in conclusion, I was reading a devotion by J.R. Packer last week, and he says, you know, we live in a dark world and dark times, and the only shining light in this dark world is the light of Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus gives us real, substantive hope in this world. If you look at the world and you think, you know, wow, what a despairing time we live in. Everything is all messed up. There's so much stress and tension and conflict and problems and sin and wickedness. Well, actually, it's it's no different from the pattern of the Bible over and over again. In Israel, in Adam and Eve, in Noah, in Abraham, the pattern of the world is there is no social evolution where we progress and there will be peace and there will be perfect society and no conflict and no war and no jealousy, no greed, no politics. But instead, the Bible tells us that the answer can only be found in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect king, the perfect judge, and the one who brings perfect forgiveness for our sins. So as we look at today's passage, I hope that as we look at the world, we don't despair and say, well, you know, what's wrong with the world? Actually, the world is just being what the world has always been. And what the Bible tells us that this world will always be. But all the more, we will turn to Jesus and save ourselves from this corrupt generation. Okay, let's turn to God in prayer. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.